If the Brisbane Lions win the AFL Grand Final this weekend, Callum Archie will be the first known male footballer with Chinese ancestry to win a VFL or AFL Premiership. It's a milestone that's been a long time coming, according to our last guest today, who's traced the history of Chinese involvement in Australian football, which reaches back 141 years when a man called Chin Kit took up the game in Bendigo in 1882. Patrick Skeen has been delving into the archives and newspapers, having a lot of fun, of far-flung country towns and inner-city suburbs. And the book that is result, has resulted is a good read. It's called Celestial Footy, the story of Chinese heritage Aussie rules. Welcome to the program, Patrick. Oh, thank you, Geraldine, and thanks for having me. Look, what prompted you to dig deeper into the involvement of Chinese Australians in the national game? I wrote an article in The Guardian in 2015 about this very curious match between the miners and the market gardeners, Chinese miners and Chinese market gardeners, in 1892. And I found it extraordinary uh, and that it went across a lot of the, cut across a lot of the stereotypes that are out there about the Chinese out in the towns that they, they kept to themselves and they didn't have civic pride and they didn't participate. And here we have 45 uh, you know, Chinese market gardeners uh, with their pigtails um, out playing for in, in front of 5,000 fans and they were doing it to raise money for the, the local benevolent asylum and they wanted to participate and help raise money because Victoria was in a crippling depression then and there was no welfare so they needed to raise funds and the fact that these guys were prepared to go on to the field and essentially humiliate themselves for the town showed a very different, showed a very different side of, of, of Chinese-Australian participation in, in, in Australian life, where they're often uh, portrayed as sojourners who were, you know, just here and, and not permanent. And Well, a lot did go back. I mean, that, that, yes. that's what your book is very interesting about the history as well. It's a sort of a, a narrow gateway into quite a broad history. I think there were sort of 100,000 came during sort of the 19th century after yeah. the, the Opium War in China and then, um, and then 15,000 were only really left, you say, uh, at the turn of the century into the 20th. That's 15,000 that would identify. There was a lot of, um, a lot of Chinese heritage people that took Anglo names and just, um, you know, ignored that side oh, of, their, of their ancestry. But, yes, it did get down to a low point and those 15,000, 99% men had the, had the dark night of the soul, whether to return home to their ancestral village or, or those guys thought Australia is more my home. They may have taken a local, in, in many cases, Aboriginal or, or Irish wife. That was the, the, the marrying lines uh, back in those days. And some of them had wives overseas as well. Polygamy was an accepted part of, of, of Chinese culture. And so some of them had a, a wife in China and a wife down here. So there were some big decisions, but those 15,000 stayed and their, their ancestors went on to play Aussie rules. Um, how many people know about this widely? I mean, you, you canvass that there's a sort of a clutch of you, by the sound of it, who swap stories. But honestly, I've read a lot about Aussie rules and I certainly didn't know this. It's the great hidden chapter. Um, people have known bits and pieces, but it's only when you delve in and, and get hardcore and get out to the museums. Um, you know, I, I went out to uh, Marupna uh, near Shepparton. I went to the Marupna Museum, and there on the walls there are four generation of Wongs that have all played for the Marupna Cats from the from the from the original son, um, who was the son of the market gardener Ah Wong, who was the market gardener of Marupna. And very famous for getting around. He was the classic Chinese vegetable man in the horse and cart, would get around, hugely popular man. And if you drive in from Shepparton now to 
um, to Marukni, you cross the Awong Bridge. It's it's pretty cool. So there are there are significant parts of Chinese Australia that have been restored. Some of it has been erased, but luckily we have the the freedom to go through the archives and construct. Um, a history like I've been able to do. And, and everyone I've said it to, they say, oh, that'll be a short book or that's a pamphlet. And that just heightens the, the joy when they read the book and they say, holy hell, this is real. There's hundreds and hundreds of Chinese Australians have played Aussie rules. And, and interestingly, they didn't play the other sports, didn't play cricket, didn't play rugby league, only one or two pioneers in each of those sports, but hundreds didn't play the global games, but they actually played the Australian native mm. game, which I find fascinating. Indeed. Um you get the name of the book from the so-called, quotes, celestial footy matches in the 1880s. Tell us about this, please. Well, celestial... Oh, that's what you've already... That's the, the, the market garden one thing, is it? Yeah, yeah, that's the, that's the market. But, but that, that comes from... Um, that's what that match was termed. But for the first 70 or 80 years of, of, of the Chinese in Australia up until the 1920s, they were referred to as the celestials. That was the nice way of referring... So if you look through any of the, of the magazines, they'll say the celestials are celebrating Lunar New Year or the celestials are, you know, are doing their celebrations. That's how they were referred to. So this match naturally... But celestials come from it comes from the Chinese concept of their emperor was a celestial Tian Xiao. And uh, yes, and you find a match report from the Ballarat Star. And look, I might get you to read, Patrick, the first two paragraphs on page seventeen, if you could. So this is from 18, 1896, the second Miners versus Market Gardeners games at Eastern Overland Ballarat. The game commenced punctually, and its start was the signal for a burst of merriment on the part of the spectators which continued without interruption until the final bell had rung. The play was a revelation to those accustomed to ordinary displays of football and the frantic attempts made by the Chinese to perform feats of which a first-class footballer of the orthodox type might well have been proud were prov- provocative of uncontrolled laughter. <laughs> and if I can m- mention one other thing, um, one other passage, and during the, all the exciting passage of, passages of play, the gardener's captor, Captain James Chung, gorgeously apparelled, maintained the same position in the centre of the field, smoked his cigarettes and surveyed his team and his opponents with a lordly air of disdain and a delightful unconcern as to the result of the struggle. I mean, he's one of the great characters of Australian history, James Chung. Well, you know, that does allude to, amidst all the gorgeousness of it, to the fact that they were lining up in the shadow of the white Australia policy, weren't they, these people? Here it comes. They're about to have their rights um, crushed in many ways, Uh, a lot of their dreams crushed by uh, this new uh, white Australia legislation in 1901. But right up until then, all through the 1890s, they played these matches right across the Victorian goldfields. It wasn't just in in, in Ballarat. It was Beechworth. um, It was Bright. It was Eaglehawk in Bendigo. So these matches are happening and, and, and they've really got no idea what's ab- about to happen to them. They're just, in their minds, participating in, in the greatest. And th- there's no more Australian institution than Aussie Rules. 1859, it was the first time we, we, we left our English and Irish or institutional oranges, origins and created something new. So it's... Um, and including yeah. the offside rule. We let the offside rule uh, uh, um, aside, as you point out to me, and decided that kicking rather than brute force sort of, you know, plunging through was going to be the order of play, which is really an... Ex- and, you know, I know people like Geoffrey Blaney have wondered whether that's partly because of the Indigenous attitudes and so on because they were so... You know, they picked it up also or they kicked balls, didn't they? Um, yeah. Amazingly. So I don't know whether you've got thoughts about that. Well, I believe Tom Wills, who's the 
the sole founder, spent time at rugby in uh, in England in a private school. He went to Ireland and saw Gaelic football, which has that point system, and he spent time and spoke the local Aboriginal languages of the Western Districts, so he saw Man Rook. So all of those influences came into him coming up with something so unique and so different from rugby that you have to attribute it to multiple influences mm. that got it to where it is. Look, it is interesting, this, um, this attitude, this sort of slightly bittersweet in some ways, um, but it, it just further about the different uh, sensibilities that were at play, I want to read also from your book. In 1924, a journalist from the Sporting Globe attended a Chinese Athletics Association match in Melbourne, and he wrote, China is fast dissociating itself with the pigtails and flowing robes that have made her ancestors unique figures in the pages of world history. She has entered fields previously unexplored by her countrymen and in all branches of sport. So this is from inner city Melbourne, is it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, there, was, there, there were matches in it. There was a, a team for 50 years called the Young Chinese League, but they, 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 before them there were some previous teams that played in, in leagues and they were all Chinese teams, all based out of Albert Park. And it was the great meeting place for the Chinese community to come down and they would see Chinese Australians playing the, you know, playing Aussie rules and think, what's this? And they'd see the physicality and, and they, they, did, they did very well as, as far as the published accounts go. They always held their own. So we had a, a, a sort of a, a team of Chinese Harlem Globetrotters just trooping around the suburbs and country towns playing footy. <laughs> and what about in, say, WA or especially Darwin, where a lot of the Chinese families moved, um, was that a hot spot for Chinese Australian players? Well, well Darwin, uh, which I've you know, learnt in my research, was a Chinese majority city until 1915, when the Vestes Meatworks moved up to the Northern Territory, and they weren't interested in hiring Chinese. So that that was how the Anglo population came up um, in any significant numbers. So when Aussie rule started in in, in Darwin. Um, the Chinese were right there. The first Chinese player was 1921. But there's a fascinating episode of, of history in which in 1927 the white teams of Darwin broke away from the Aboriginal teams to form their own, um, you know, basically lowering the colour bar. And the Chinese people in the town felt so bad for the Aboriginals and were so incensed by what had happened that 30 of them left the Darwin's Chinese Soccer League to play for two years with the Aboriginals, they formed their own new oh, Darwin football truly. league. So you've got Saturday, the White League, Sunday, this Asian Aboriginal League. There were some Filipinos in there as well. And the Asian Aboriginal League was so exciting and just so colourful that it, it got bigger crowds and eventually forced the, the white teams to, to, to come back into the fold. Now, that tells me that they, the Chinese guys funded that league, they staffed that league with the Aboriginals, and that tells me they care about the town they care about the Aboriginals, saw them as their, as their brothers, which is, again, that if you want to talk standing by your mates when he's in a fight as an Aussie value, I, I, I give you the Darwin Football League. Yeah, I must say, that that's a television series waiting to happen, isn't it? I must say. Yeah, yeah. Um, because you do point out, I think Darcy um, uh, Darcy Vescio, writing in the foreword, makes the yep. point that a lot of migrants' families, they were so fixated on money earning, on establishing themselves in the new country, that the notion of playing sport just seemed absolutely surplus to need. You know, why would you put your effort into that? You know, get your degree, <laughs> go on, become a surgeon. Did, did, did the, the, and that was particularly pronounced in, in Asian societies too, with their emphasis on, on education. So did, did the people who played all this, were they like slightly renegades? They just sort of, you know, went against their families thoughts? 
Oh yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot of that. There's you know Lin Jong, the, one of the most celebrated characters in the book. You know, having to break to his mother and his mother crying. You know, you can't make money playing football. You know, you've got to be a doctor account. And there's always that tension. And beyond the Chinese, there's always that tension. Particularly, uh, a lot of migrants work on Saturdays in, in in a retail sense, and the kids would work in the stores. Or a lot of migrants go to tutoring. The kids go to tutoring on Saturday mornings, which conflicts with sport because they see education as the passport to success in Australia and uh, sport can be a a next generation thing. So, yeah, there is a bit of the rebel and renegade and just the act of stepping on the field in some of these country towns, uh, knowing that you're going to receive, you know, some racial abuse or or you're getting some is an act of bravery for me back in the day that shows how much they love the game and how much they... I just must read you a lovely text that's come in. Sydney has a Chinese basketball association, minimum number of non-Asian players permitted. Uh, my white son was asked to play and loved it. Speed and determination prevailed. Very competitive. <laughs> that's the other side of the story, isn't it? Yes, yes. That's, that's, uh, that's, that's, respect is a two-way street. Um, Look, I wonder how you'll feel where your team loyalties will lie, uh, Patrick. Uh, For instance, will you be barracking, I don't even know your team loyalty, for Kalamachi and the Lions today? Because that's really quite a moment, isn't it, with Kalamachi, the first known male Asian man to be playing? It's particularly poignant for me because I went up to Derby to see the house that his great-great-grandfather, Owen Archie, built. Owen Archie... I don't know how he got there. Derby's a far-flung place, but uh, mosquitoes, and it's not glamorous like Broome. It's a hard town, and there he oh, was. Careful setting what up you the, say. Very strongly felt up. views in Derby yeah. about this. <laughs> I know, I know. I, I went up there. It's hard. They don't. They're not up for the tourist dollar. They're just a you know a, a hard frontier town, and um, and Owen Archie set up the bakery there in 1885 and uh, married an Aboriginal woman. Uh, they had 11 children. It spawned the Archie clan. So I've been to the house and saw the house that Owen built. I met with okay. his father. We've got, we've, got, we've got to go in a moment because we okay. want to get to the themes. I'm sorry, I'm going to cut you off because, yep. look, congratulations. Celestial Footy is the, is the name of the book, the story of Chinese heritage rule, Aussie rules. And as we always do on this weekend, here are the team songs, enjoy them, for the NRL and AFL Grand Finals. Have a lovely weekend. Thanks to the team. Belinda Summer, Isabel Summers, and Jesse Kay. Bye bye for now. Hey! Hey! Where the Broncos, the mighty Broncos, think you're fighting every second till the end. The only thing that's on your mind is you're close enough to score. Go, the mighty Panthers, let's put them to the Great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.